Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for how it penetrates our lives and transforms us. We pray that your spirit would be doing that work in us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, Last week, Bob mentioned uh, a childhood memory that he had of the magazine Highlights. Remember that? I did. Uh, It made me think of one of my childhood memories watching TV. Uh, Do you remember Sesame Street and a game that they taught us to play on Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And they'd usually show, you know, three red circles and one purple circle or three squares and one triangle. And you had to pick out which one didn't belong. Well, I'm going to test you this morning and see if you can pass that Sesame Street game test, okay? Three statements. One of them just doesn't belong. Or maybe I should say one of them is different than the others. Okay, statement number one. The human head weighs eight pounds. At least that's what the little kid in Jerry Maguire told me. Okay? The human head weighs eight pounds. Statement number two. The price of tea in China, at least as of Tuesday, was 260 yen for a two-year-old cake of Ye Sheng Gucha tea. I have no idea what that means, if that's good tea, bad tea, expensive tea, or cheap tea, but that is the price of tea in China as of Tuesday. The third statement, the Lord is near. Okay, easy. I'm sure you all passed that test. Two very irrelevant statements and one profound truth. You were able to pass that test because I told you it was coming. But every day, we encounter that kind of a test. We're bombarded with hundreds, thousands of pieces of information every day. They come through our TV sets. They come on billboards. They come as we're working out on our phones. We're bombarded with them. And most of it is about as relevant as the price of tea in China. It has no practical impact on our life. Uh, In the 1980s, Neil Postman wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He said that with the invention of electronic communication, uh, large-scale, this is his phrase, large-scale irrelevancy was introduced into our discourse. So much of the information we receive just doesn't impact us 
at all. Think about the things, the stories we see on the news. They're now more about novelty and entertainment than they are calls to action. News stories are about things that will entertain and draw us in rather than things that will change how we act. We get so used to kind of swatting aside and swiping and turning the channel on these irrelevant pieces of information that I think it's easy to miss things that are truly impactful, like profound statements such as, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That is one truth that should ripple through our lives, impact our attitudes, our behaviors, our actions. And that's what we see in this text this morning. A profound truth that's dropped in the middle of of six commands and is connected to all of them, I think. The Lord is near, Paul says. Or if you're looking at another translation, it might say the Lord is at hand. That's a profound truth. Uh, But what does Paul mean by that? Does he mean that the Lord is is near temporally, and it's a time reference? Or does he mean that the Lord is near spatially, he's close by? Both truths are echoed throughout the book of Philippians, the small letter that Paul was sending to a church. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing the Lord is coming back and coming back soon. He's temporally near. His return is imminent. It's close by. It's at hand. That was a truth that he expected would impact how the church would live, how they would act, their attitudes and their behaviors. But he also, in the book of Philippians, emphasizes that the Lord is is near to them spatially. He's close by. He's at hand. He opens the letter, reminding the church that they are the saints that are in Christ. Christ the Lord is so near to them that they're united with him. They're in him, and he is in them. His abiding presence is with them in the midst of their, their daily life. And that also is a truth that was supposed to impact how they lived. I think Paul is intentionally vague here when he says the Lord is near. He means us to understand, yes, the Lord is near, he's close by, his return is imminent, and the Lord is with us. Keeping that promise that he made before he left, before he ascended, that I will be with you even to the end of the age. He is. The Lord is near. So Paul says this, drops this profound truth on the church. Does he mean it as an encouragement or maybe as a warning? Imagine a mom sitting at a dinner table and she says to her family, only three more days till Christmas. Now, That is an encouragement, right? That is a promise to the kids that are overjoyed and excited and can barely even contain their enthusiasm. Only three more days of waiting and then Christmas is here. 
It's a word of encouragement and promise to them. But to the dad who hasn't done any Christmas shopping yet, it's a warning. Only three more days to get it done, husband, father, daddy. And the time for online shopping is drawing to a close. I think Paul says this, gives us this profound truth. The Lord is near and it's both promise and warning. The Lord is near, he's in your midst. He sees your toil, he sees your struggle, he sees your faithfulness, he sees your perseverance, and he's coming soon to reward. And the Lord is near. He's in your midst. He sees your compromise. He sees your lack of zeal. It's a warning and a promise. Either way, it's a profound truth. A truth that Paul drops in the pond of our reality and it ripples. It ripples throughout our our person, throughout our life, throughout our days and our weeks and our years. In this passage, there's actually six, I'm calling them ripples. There's six commands that are connected to this profound truth that the Lord is near. Interestingly, they're not connected by any conjunction. There's no phrase like, because of this, or, or therefore, or and, or not even a but. There's no conjunctions that connect the Lord is near to any one of these commands, because I think Paul intends it to qualify all of these six commands. Six ripples, six ways of this truth makes waves in our lives. First, the one who believes that the Lord is near, the one who believes that the Lord is close by, will be joyful. Will rejoice. Paul says, and he repeats it for emphasis, rejoice always. You can almost hear the rhetorical reply, really Paul, always Yes, let me say it again, rejoice. Now you have to keep in mind who is saying this, right? This isn't a man flying around to speaking engagements in a private jet with a million dollar smile. This is Paul, who knew what it was to be deprived of basic necessities, who knew what it was like to live in Roman prisons, who knew what it was like to be stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. And he can say, rejoice always. In every circumstance, in all things, rejoice. Now when I read that, I think initially, well, Paul, what if I don't, what if I don't feel like rejoicing? Oh, what if I'm frankly sad? What if I'm angry? What if I'm just down and I don't feel like rejoicing? Should I, should I fake it till I make it? Fake it till I feel it? Here I have these kind of arguments with myself often. And I say that and I think, yes and no. No if it means I'm just fake and I'm 
not allowing myself to be sad, not allowing myself to enter suffering, not allowing myself to feel pain, or, or frankly hiding it from the body of Christ and not sharing and giving people the, the privilege and the opportunity to carry my burden with me, then that's not what I think we ought to do. I just taught a six-week series on Lamentations. That's what I thought we should do. We should just rip those out and throw them away, right? Those pages. It's about entering into and feeling suffering and pain, but also acknowledging that there is something deeper, more profound than our momentary discomfort, our momentary sadness or suffering. The Lord is near. And so when I don't feel it, then yeah, I feel like sometimes I ought to go through the motions. Because going through the motions of worship, of praise, of adoration, of rejoicing, has an impact then on how I feel. Uh, in premarital counseling, a lot of times I, I tell young couples that sometimes you're just not going to feel very loving towards your spouse. I see a lot of heads nodding. You're with me on that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do loving things. Just because the feelings aren't there. Matter of fact, I think especially when the feelings aren't there, you step in and you act in loving ways and the feelings warm again. That doesn't mean you're not sad. That doesn't mean you're not angry. But there's something more profound. It's love. Or in this passage, it's rejoicing in the nearness of our Lord. Those who understand the nearness of our Lord will be joyful because they understand that there's a, a truth deeper than pain and discouragement. They'll also be gentle. So interesting word, a difficult word to translate. Some, if you're looking at your Bible, maybe it says be reasonable. Let your gentleness or your reasonableness be evident to all. Commentators all agreed that there's no single English word that translates what this Greek word means. It's gentle. It's reasonable. It's not walking around gruff with a chip on your shoulder. It carries connotations of being long-suffering, willing to suffer injustice without grumbling and complaining. It's a loaded, packed word. And, and Paul says that those who understand that the Lord is near, they ought to be characterized by this spirit of gentleness and reasonableness. Because they know that when he comes, he will settle all accounts. The injustice that you're bearing, you can tolerate it. You don't have to walk around and fight for your rights. You can lay him aside, knowing that all injustices, all wrongs are righted when the Lord who is near finally comes. Christians should be gentle and reasonable. That's the second ripple. The third, they'll be untroubled. Untroubled in their spirit. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. He's echoing Jesus' words, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. 
Because your heavenly Father knows that you need those things. And, he, and Jesus in the Gospels calls us to look at the birds, the sparrows, the lilies. Your heavenly Father knows how to feed them and clothe them. They don't toil or worry. Here Paul adds another layer to that admonition not to worry, not to, to be troubled in our spirits. Not only does our Heavenly Father know we need those things, but our Lord is near and can provide those things. The Lord is near and he sees what we need. And so we can be untroubled, we can be calm in our spirits. As I was thinking about that, that calmness that should characterize us, uh, you gotta forgive me for this illustration. Rocky came to mind. I told you I'm going to see Creed II this afternoon with my boys. I've watched all the Rocky movies this week, getting ready for it, okay? I'm committed. So, just pick a Rocky movie, they're all the same. Uh, Rocky III, the second fight, he's getting ready to, ready to fight Clubber Lang. Mr. T, and he's standing in the center of the ring and this mean, vicious brawler is standing in front of him, spewing hate, spewing insults, ready to knock his head off. But Rocky's calm, he's confident, he's not disturbed. He knows, he knows he's put the work in, he knows he's trained, he knows he's ready, he knows he's gonna win this fight, he's confident. Now our calm, is different than Rocky's because it doesn't come, it's not fictional, and it doesn't come from knowing how hard we've trained. It comes from knowing who's on our side. The sovereign Lord of the universe is near. If you will, he's in our corner. He's at our back. He's at hand. He's not a distant, disinterested God. He's a personal God who's there with you in the battle so you can stay calm and untroubled in your spirit. Let's take a pause here for a second. I want us to notice two things. Uh, First, notice that Paul is concerned with the reputation the church has with those outside. He's very concerned about it. I think sometimes... We take Jesus' words when he says, the, the world is going to hate you. It hated me, it's going to hate you also. And we take that and we, we internalize it and then we use it as an excuse not to give a rip what the world thinks. Well, they hate us. They think we're jerks. Well, Jesus said so. Yeah, but... The Apostle Paul was very concerned about the church's reputation. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be evident to all. Yeah, they may hate you, but they'll know you're gentle. They'll know you're reasonable and long-suffering. You can look at 1 Corinthians. Paul says, you know, when you're in public worship, don't speak in tongues. They'll come in and they'll think you're crazy. You want to have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, when you're selecting elders among you, 1 Timothy, 
Make sure that they have a good reputation, not just in the church, but, he says, with outsiders. Paul wants us to have a good reputation in the world. So, do we? Are we known for being a joyful, gentle, reasonable, untroubled lot of people? I think our public persona is almost the exact opposite of that. Of being dour, combative, easily offended, ready to fight over every little thing. Uh, Being fearful even. Uh, Of being the chicken littles crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Paul wouldn't want that. Our reputation isn't what it should be. Probably because these truths that we claim, we're not allowing them to ripple in our lives. Okay, back to the passage. Fourth ripple. Christians who understand that the Lord is near will be prayerful. Will be prayerful. This is connected with the command not to worry, almost as the remedy for anxiety. Don't be anxious, but instead, be prayerful. Make your petitions, make your requests, and give your thanksgiving to God. All of those things acknowledge God's providence in our lives. We ask him to give us today our daily bread, understanding that he is providentially overseeing all of his creation and providing our daily bread through sending rain to the crops, by sending the farmer to the fields to harvest the crops, the baker to bake the bread, the shopkeeper to sell the bread. God is providentially overseeing and caring about all of those things. And so we can pray and say, give us today our daily bread. And when he gives it, we give thanks. Understanding that the Lord is near and involved in all of those things. So the person who understands that the Lord is near will be prayerful. Fifth, Christians who understand that the Lord is near will be contemplative. I like that word contemplative. Look at verse 7 again. I'm sorry, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This week, I considered this to be one of the hardest commandments in this passage. There's six total. I think this is maybe the hardest. There's external external reasons that make it hard. It's hard sometimes to find the good, to contemplate. Uh, We're bombarded, not just with information, like I said, but with a lot of bad information, dark information information, notes and news about the evil that we do to one another, depressing, difficult stuff. 
Our leaders do not model what is true, what is pure, what is praiseworthy. It's often exactly the opposite. The entertainment industry does not hold up often what is good and noble and pure. Instead, it portrays what is evil, even cruel or base, and celebrates those things. And so it's hard. We have to be proactive, I think, in seeking out what is good, in sifting through kind of the rubble to find the jewels of noble and honorable and pure. And be disciplined to contemplate them. And not just think passingly on them, but to dwell with them. To let them radiate in us. There's external reasons why it's hard. It's hard to find good things. There's also internal reasons why it's hard to contemplate and dwell on what is good and pure. Uh, this week on Tuesday, I went to, to pick Jake up from, from baseball practice. He said practice was going to be over at 3.15, 3.30. He didn't come out until 4.10. So I had good time in the car, sitting and waiting. Luckily, I had a book with me that I had been meaning to start for some time. The book is by Philip Halley, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. It's the true story of a town in southern France. I'm going to butcher the name. I don't speak French. La Chambon. Southern France. The author, Philip Halley, is not a historian, not a novelist, not even that good a storyteller. He's a philosopher. He's an ethicist. And he was studying in the 1960s and 70s cruelty institutional cruelty. And he was studying the Third Reich and how he was just studying the, the evil that was perpetrated throughout Europe in the concentration camps by the Gestapo, by the SS. And, and he, he wrote this book about La Chambon. He describes it as a place where goodness happened. Uh, the town of 3,000 people is credited with saving approximately 5,000 Jews from concentration camps, most of them children. And they incorporated this, the, these refugees, into their town. They lived in their homes, they went to their schools, sometimes they hid in their barns and their attics. It was an open secret. Uh, the Germans referred to La Chambon as that nest of Jews. But yet, the townspeople, under the leadership of their pastor, continued this dangerous work from 1940 to 1944. The pastor himself was eventually arrested, I think 1943, and sent to the concentration camps himself. Uh, the author describes how he stumbled into this research project that he was doing. He said, I was reading documents about the cruelties that were happening, studying again institutional cruelty. And he said, I came across an article, short article, three pages long, 
about La Chambon. He was used to reading about torture and evil and darkness. He said, I read this, and I began to weep. Uh, My heart was hardened to the evil that I had surrounded myself with. But this purity, this goodness pierced me like a spear. And he allowed this to become the focus, at least for the next years of his career. As I was reading this book in the car outside of the school waiting for Jake to come out, I started weeping. I put the book away, I thought, this is probably a better office read or bedroom read. I wasn't ready for goodness like that. Uh, I've become so accustomed to the hard stuff. I have protections against the hard stuff. But goodness was almost painful to dwell with there because it made the darkness even darker. The darkness that I see in the world, the darkness that I know is in my own heart. Dwelling with goodness can be hard, but it's good. We as Christians ought to be people who contemplate what is noble and honorable and pure and good. Interestingly here, the list that Paul has isn't a specifically Christian list. It's not the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. It's actually a list of virtues that would would appear in virtually any Greek manual on ethics. These are the things that humanity ought to be about. Christians, we don't have a market on what is good and noble and honorable and pure. But we can celebrate what we see in others. We can even devote our lives to the good that we see in humanity. So we ought to be contemplative. Sixth ripple, we ought to be practical. Yes, we're contemplative. Yes, we're pondering what is good and noble. But Paul says at the end, what I've taught you, what I've shown you, practice it. Actually, the word there is much more simple. Not put it into practice, it's do it. Just do it. All that I've taught you, all that I've showed you, put it into your lives. Believe it, live it, let it ripple through your attitudes and your actions. Just do it. And the result, the result of knowing and believing that the Lord is near, the result of letting this truth ripple through your life is the peace of God. The peace of God. This is a further promise for those who are already at peace with God through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. We can experience not only peace with God, but the peace of God. And listen to how Paul describes it. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God transcends all understanding. It's higher. It surpasses all human reasoning. It's almost 
irrational, the peace of God. There's plenty of Christians who have been reconciled with God, but don't know the peace of God because they don't allow these truths to work out in their life. Paul calls us to to put these truths into action and then says the peace of God, and better yet, verse nine, the God of peace will be with you. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace himself will be with you and will stand guard over your hearts. It's a military image. The peace of God setting up a citadel to guard your heart in Christ Jesus. I have no idea what time I was supposed to end, but we made it. Uh, But there is a second sermon to come. It's a visible sermon. When we come to this table, it's not just words and actions, it's a representation. The visible sermon at the Lord's table, reminding us, showing us, and making the truth of Christ's presence a a reality for us. Not physically, but truly Really, spiritually, Christ present with us. The Lord is near when we come to this table. As we do so, let's allow the truth of Paul's words and the reality of this table to ripple through our lives so that we may experience the peace of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful again for your word Pray that we wouldn't just treat it as more information to be digested, but as truths that will sink down deep and create shockwaves in our lives. Father, we pray that we would truly understand what it means that the Lord is near, that the Lord is present with us and coming soon. Father, we pray that we would be found to be joyful people, untroubled by the affairs of this world, contemplating what is good and pure and giving prayer. And may the peace of Christ be with us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.